Hey everyone, I'm Philip Anthony Albertelli, and this is the Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And this is the 200th episode, not so spectacular. Originally, I was going to have gorillas on motorcycles, circus ladies eating flaming swords. But yeah, you know, don't get too excited. Actually, if you count all the unnumbered holiday specials and whatnot, the 200th episode probably already passed a while ago. But hey, it's still the 200th numbered episode. I guess that still counts for something, right? Back when I hit episode 100, I told my listeners that I'd keep going until at least the 300 episode mark. And that if you guys kept showing interest, I'd happily keep going beyond that. And that's still pretty much the plan. Doing this podcast has become such a fixed part of my life that I couldn't imagine not doing it anymore. It would feel like I gave up or lost a part of myself. So if you like the show, don't worry, I'm going to keep going for the foreseeable future. Let's see, maybe I'll quickly reply to some listener feedback before we move on to the news and some other things I wanted to cover. So I'll start with Twitter. Thor Holt. Why isn't my name Thor Holt? Uh, Thor Holt who's actually the host of the Write With Courage podcast. I was checking it out, and he has some awesome guests on there. But he tweeted, Just found your show. You, Joe Rogan, at Gavin McInnes, especially, kept me company on a walk. <laughs> and he, I think he's saying he had Gavin on his Write With Courage uh, show recently. And then he tweeted uh, from his Write With Courage account, we are enjoying at the Weekend Out podcast this week. Hashtag atheist. Have you had at Cult of Dusty on your show, Phil? Hashtag logic. And I responded, never had the pleasure, but I'd be honored to talk to Dusty. I enjoy his vids and DP appearances. I'm game. Thumbs up. Yeah, so I'd love to interview Cult of Dusty. That would be uh that'd be pretty damn cool. It's been a while since I've done an interview episode, so if if you're listening, Dusty, yeah, I, I am indeed game. And actually, Cult of Dusty followed me recently and he liked uh Right with Courage's tweet and my response, so that's pretty cool. Maybe that means there could be there could be a Cult of Dusty uh interview on the horizon. And I just saw that someone named Anna Nash Steer followed me. And they actually sent me a message, and I just checked it out as I'm recording this. And wow, it says, Hi, I'm a mom of three and another on the way, desperately trying to seek justice for a dear relative who has been unlawfully detained in Iran, one of many. No charges, no lawyers, no human rights, torn away from her toddler while visiting grandparents and kept in solitary confinement. Please spare 30 seconds to sign our petition and push diplomatic pressure to get her home as safely and as quickly as possible. And uh, she gives a link for the petition, change.org slash p slash David Cameron, hyphen MP, hyphen free, hyphen Nazanin, uh, N-A-Z-A-N-I-N, hyphen Radcliffe. Okay. And then she continues, thank you. Please share this link. We have 760,000 signatures. We want a million. And for all I know, this might have been some kind of robo-automatic reply to um, everyone who follows her. Uh, you know, just try to automatically spread the word. But yeah, that's a pretty heavy story, man. If you can help just by signing a petition... Um, 
I've, as a skeptic, I've always been a little skeptical about how much petitions can achieve. But even if there's the smallest chance that signing this petition can help, I, I guess why not? I'm probably going to sign it right now. There, I just signed it now and shared it on Facebook. I hate how skeptical I am. I'm almost like, hmm, is this for real? I've never even heard of this person. But I have no reason to doubt them. Why would they create a petition asking for help for someone in trouble on the other side of the world if uh, unless it was a real story, you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, I almost feel ashamed for doubting, but um, in this crazy world we live in, a little skepticism helps, but sometimes too much skepticism, I guess, can be a bad thing uh, if it gets in the way of doing good. But hopefully I did some good. Be skeptical, but not cynical, I guess, or at least not too cynical. I guess now let's jump over to YouTube. Non-theist David, and I love his uh, avatar or his little YouTube icon. It's uh, an illustration of Christopher Hitchens with a big red hand behind his head, and it says Hitch Slap. And uh, Non-theist David says Price is, in fact, a mythicist. And that has to do with, um, in passing in episode 199, I was talking about Robert M. Price, and how I knew he was very knowledgeable when it came to mythicism, um, but I wasn't sure if he outright considered himself a mythicist. And um, so non-theist David says, yes, Price is in fact a mythicist, and that does seem to be the case. While I was researching all this, I found something really interesting. Um, there's a website called Mythicist Milwaukee, and they're talking about their upcoming debate series. And it says, Friday, October 21st, Robert M. Price and Bart Ehrman are going to go at it uh, on the question of, did Jesus exist? That's the type of thing I would love to see, but I think I'm too lazy to go to Milwaukee, plus I work all week. Uh, I'll probably just wait till it comes to YouTube. But, but that does sound awesome. And then uh, my friend Silor the Blade had uh, an interesting comment regarding that controversial story about a page of the Quran showing up briefly in an episode of the children's show, Fireman Sam, where one of the characters slips on a pile of papers, and one of the papers shown going up in the air is a page from the Quran. So I guess not only were people offended that a page of the Quran was shown, maybe in a lighthearted manner or something, but they were specifically offended that it was kind of insinuated that the person or the character had stepped on a page from the Quran. Sylor commented on some other things as well, but I'll just focus on his comments on that story. I think the Quran page could be likened to someone defacing a nation's flag or even a page of the Bible being treated the same way. I personally don't care on all accounts, and even if it was something I didn't approve of, I would just remove my financial support. I can still understand why some would be offended. I also can't understand why people wouldn't react in a similar manner to me. There are far more important things to get worked up over, and if you truly believe in your faith, then it would be up to your God to enforce the issue. So well said there. And I responded, interesting analogy concerning a flag in the Quran. I was thinking something similar to that today and wondering if I came across as too callous when I glibly dismissed it as just a book. And so 
I did feel kind of bad when I said something to the effect of if you're offended by that, slap yourself in the face and wake up. You know, it's just a page from, you know, a man-made book or whatever. And oddly enough, I don't feel bad at all for saying that I supported and still support the Charlie Hebdo cartoons, the Dutch cartoons. I don't feel bad for showing an explicit Charlie Hebdo cover that appears to be showing a naked Prophet Muhammad gang. I don't know if it's a prostate exam or what's going on. Someone standing behind him with a with a camera. Um, I don't backtrack on that or apologize for that uh, stuff at all. And I'm not backpedaling on my statement that I believe that, in a sense, the Quran is just a book. There's nothing divine or holy about it, at least from my opinion, as an atheist and a skeptic. Um, to me, it's just another man-made contradictory, uh, quote-unquote, holy book. And I think that a lot of ugliness arises from people taking these texts too seriously and, you know, considering them to be literally divinely inspired or revealed and feeling that they have to actually defend the honor of these texts. I think the world would be a much better place if people just looked at these books as ancient literature um, and, and tried to enjoy them on that level. Getting offended or God who I don't believe in forbid, uh, you know, imprisoning um, people or even executing them for disrespecting these texts. Uh, I think we need to grow up out of that stuff. But I, what I do apologize for is perhaps the uncharacteristically glib way I expressed myself. And I think empathy is important. Yeah, like Sylor said, I can understand why people might get offended. Um, if you're a literal believer, uh, then yeah, I could see why you'd be offended, even if, to me as an atheist, it doesn't make any sense to uh, get offended. Um, and even if you're a cultural Muslim who's not a religious fundamentalist, you might think, oh, this book is a part of my culture, so by making fun of it, uh, you're somehow making fun of uh, me, my family, and my culture. But you guys know me. I, I believe very strongly and passionately that we have the right to criticize and lampoon and satirize religion. Maybe I just felt like I could have been a little bit more thoughtful in my response or my criticism. But I think all this does bring up an interesting philosophical question. You know, is a book just a book? Uh, even though I don't think any books are divinely inspired or revealed, I do think that in a sense, at least on a personal level, that books can seem to be more than just bound pages. I own a lot of books, and if someone came into my place and <laughs> started ripping up my complete works of William Blake or um, my copy of Arthur Rimbaud's A Season in Hell or whatever, um, I, I would be horrified, aghast. And, and it wouldn't have anything to do with the money I spent on them. It would have to do with my sentimental attachment to the books, how much I value the content, the beauty and the power uh, of the words within. But as someone who was raised Catholic and now, uh, you know, is basically an atheist, I know some of you don't like the term, but agnostic atheist, 
Meaning I'm agnostic in the sense that I don't believe we can definitively prove one way or the other whether or not there is a higher power. But I'm atheistic in the sense that, based on the evidence or lack thereof, I strongly doubt the existence of a higher power or an afterlife. Yeah, but as someone who grew up Catholic and maybe even in a weird way is culturally Catholic, I absolutely couldn't care if they showed a picture of the older New Testament being stepped on in an episode of Fireman Sam, or even if they had uh, Curious George wiping his backside with a page. I, I-, I just, you know, I wouldn't care. I- I'd be laughing right along with uh, the rest of the heathens. But to reiterate, you know, usually if I criticize religion, I- I'll try to do so in a really thoughtful manner, or at least I like to think so, where I try to employ at least some measure of empathy. So just glibly saying, you know, slap yourself in the face and wake up. Yeah, maybe I feel a little bad about that. And it reminded me of a childhood anecdote. Story time, you guys ready for it? Uh, I think some of you guys like when I tell uh, personal stories. Maybe some others find them painfully boring and you wish I'd just stay on topic. Uh, and if you're in the latter camp, I apologize. So when I was a kid, I was absolutely horrible at sports, had no interest in sports, and in some way always felt like kind of a freak because of it. And it, it caught my attention when, if you listen to that full-length version of that You Made It Weird podcast, remember I played the excerpt last week of John Hodgman and Pete Holmes talking about agnosticism? If you listen to that whole interview, they actually talk about how neither of them uh, had an interest in sports as a kid. It always blows my mind because I feel like it's so rare for guys to not have an interest in sports, you know, when I hear other people admit that. Uh, Because I I always felt like I was the only one. Yeah, but I was born premature. Um, My asthma and allergies didn't get diagnosed till later. But my parents have stories about me being rushed to the hospital as an infant to get adrenaline shots. Supposedly when I was born, my breathing was so weak that I didn't even cry. Or so the story goes. And I was sick a lot as a kid Because of my undiagnosed asthma and allergies, I was very susceptible to sinus and chest infections and things like that. And I would miss school for weeks at a time. And so I don't know if it's in part because of this or if it's just my natural temperament or disposition. So instead of being really physically active, I just like from an early age, I like to just kind of crawl back in my head and think about things. To just daydream and think deeply, perhaps too deeply at times. So I had neither the stamina to play sports nor the the interest to even bother. Um, I tried a few times and I, you know, I'd usually end up getting winded or I would just end up daydreaming or something like that. So eventually I was just like, why bother, you know? And I was lucky, you know, there's some kids who are bad at sports who get completely ostracized, you know, who get marginalized, treated like garbage constantly, taunted and bullied. That wasn't the case with me. Despite the fact that I dreaded gym class, I always had a lot of friends. In fact, I I usually always had friends from different cliques. The popular kids, the jocks, the average kids, the nerds. Around middle school, I fell in with the quote-unquote bad kids. 
Uh, back in my day, we called them skids or burnouts. <laughs> the kids who wore concert t-shirts, grew their hair long, smoked outside, you know, the high school or whatever. And even then, I still maintained friendships with people from, from different cliques. And even though I was shy and kind of introverted, I would still push myself to be social. So sometimes I would kind of assume the role of class clown. And I was also an artist. Uh, still am, I guess, technically. <laughs> yeah, you're sick of hearing it, but I do have that graphic design degree. I let go to waste. Um, stuck in the family construction business. Which, despite my lack of uh, athleticism, that definitely has helped to kind of strengthen me and build my coordination. I've been doing that for almost two decades. Yeah, so I was known for being an artist, for being able to draw. So if people wanted some obscene caricature drawn of a teacher they didn't particularly care for or something like that, I, w I was one of the, the people that they'd come to. In fact, uh, two of my friends and I, one of them was actually on the football team. Good kid, like I said, a football player, well over six feet, but also, uh, you know, maybe like myself, a budding intellectual at the same time. But we got in trouble for creating this big book full of uh, sketches, lampooning teachers and other students entitled The Catalog of Dementation. Uh, which I think I was the main artist, and then um, my friends kind of ran it off on a copying machine, bound it, and passed it out, and we ended up in the principal's office. Yeah, and, and lastly, another reason why maybe I didn't get completely marginalized is that I had an, one of my older brothers was fairly popular, and he was dating the older sister of a really popular girl. So I think all that stuff helped to keep me from uh, being a complete pariah. And, and so even though I was absolutely horrible at sports, people, generally speaking, still seemed to like me. So yeah, uh, to reiterate, I, I dreaded gym class. Um, because I was so bad at sports and because I knew sports seemed to matter so much to everyone else. And unlike the rest of the day, where people generally seemed to like me and I had a lot of friends... I really was the odd man out in gym class, and it was not a good feeling. Um, I would try to pay attention as much as possible, but I would always end up daydreaming. I was the kid who would, like, get a ball off the head or accidentally score a goal for the wrong team. There was one time when some of the, like, the jocks, I guess, that I, that I was friendly with, we were in the library, you know, we had to find a, a book for a book report or whatever, and they had suggested that I do a book report on Bobby Orr. I think maybe we had to choose a biography or something like that. And I had been reading the book. And the next gym class we had, I, we were playing uh, floor hockey. And I actually scored a goal. And it was like, wow. It, you know, it was like a dream come true. But at the same time, I knew it probably wouldn't last, which it didn't. You know, <laughs> I went back to being my... Uh, regular daydreamy clumsy awful at sports self but there was this one day i think i'm trying to remember if it was middle school or early high school uh we were doing wrestling in a gym class and it's funny i remember the two things i dread the most i think were probably wrestling well maybe no maybe not wrestling there are definitely sports i dreaded more than that um like volleyball because i'm such a laid-back kind of daydreamer and volleyball you have to be totally aware and alert 
And to, to me, it was like being under fire, you know, I was just like always looking in the wrong place, never knowing when, where the ball was going to come from. And another thing I really dreaded was project adventure. That's what they called it. Because when I was a kid, I was afraid of heights and they would do things like they would fold up the bleachers. So it was just like a, a smooth wall, except for the spaces between the folded bleachers. And you had to, they'd put like a, um, was it a belay, you know, and a harness on you? Or maybe a belaying device. And there was the little carabiner, etc. And you had to climb up the bleachers and jump off. And then they would take us outside into the woods by the high school. And there'd be these high up catwalks that you had to walk um, wearing the harness or whatever. And that stuff terrified me, and I, I barely passed Project Adventure. And now the funny thing is, uh, doing construction, I mean, I was probably within the first few months of doing construction, I got over my fear of heights because I had to be up on rooftops, etc. cetera, uh, had to be walking along staging that was like two or three, you know, stories up. So no longer afraid of heights. And I also did some pretty wacky stuff in my early 20s when I still really identified myself as a singer in a band, still very heavily influenced by Jim Morrison. And, you know, I'd get really drunk or messed up and I would uh, balance along high, you know, the edges of high up buildings and hang off of uh, rooftops or railings and stupid things like that. And did uh, some cliff diving, and somehow uh, I'm still alive. But anyway, so back to uh, either middle school or early high school. We were doing wrestling, and there was this one uh, wrestling coach, uh, he was also a gym teacher, named Mr. Leverser. And some of my old high school buddies might be listening, and I know a lot of them are were always fond of uh, Lev, as they call him for short, so I'll try not to be too disparaging. And he seemed like a combination of, like, the stereotypical Greek or Italian cartoon chef you'd see on a pizza box and, like, a pro wrestler. Like, a big burly guy with, you know, curly dark hair and a dark, you know, black hair and a black mustache. And there was another uh, gym teacher named Mr. Graham, who was a real kind of hard ass, too, and, like, a big, just burly, swarthy guy. Well, it's kind of funny. I remember uh, Mr. Graham's nephew. I was kind of friendly with him, and his nephew was horrible at sports, too. And he just, like, tormented his nephew. It didn't matter it was his nephew, you know? So one day, you know, we're doing wrestling, and I, I told you guys I'm a Doors fanatic, and I wish I could dig up a picture of it, but I don't think I'll have time. Because I'm in um, one of the yearbooks where I got voted most artistic, not most autistic, as uh, my one well, of my older brothers used to tease me, most artistic. And in the picture, I'm wearing a Doors concert shirt. So even at an early age, like early middle school or something, I was already a Doors freak. And one day I was wearing like a baseball jersey style Doors uh, shirt. It had a red collar and red sleeves and the body was white. And it had either a picture of Jim Morrison or a picture of the whole band on the face of the shirt or the front of the shirt. And this, this is what, and talk about a long-winded story. This is what reminded me of my attitude about the Quran thing where I said, you know, wake up. Mr. Leverser looked at me and said, wake up, Jim Morrison's dead, like out of nowhere. And I think both of them were there, Leverser and Graham, and they wanted me to wrestle 
like a big fat kid that was clearly out of my weight class. When I was younger, I had like a really thin like swimmer's build almost. And hopefully I'm getting back to it. I lost about 30 pounds since the holidays, but that's a different story. So I'm wondering what the hell is going on? And they made me wrestle. I had to wrestle this big fat kid. And I found out afterwards, and it's a pretty crazy story. So there was this kid I was friends with, like a good, clean cut, popular, athletic kid. Named, I don't know if it's all right to give his name. I, I, I'm not saying anything bad. So his name was Sean Lane. Really good kid. And he had a younger brother who was just like off the wall. Very strange, very eccentric kid. And for some reason, his nickname was Frankie Smith. And actually, in retrospect, Frankie Smith is a pretty good kid. I've actually hung out with him a couple of times since uh, high school or whatever. But uh, he was known for being very eccentric. And he had this um, kind of chubby, pear-shaped friend with a bowl cut. And one day, uh, I was talking to Frankie Smith and uh, his friend. I'm trying to be nice. You know, I'm just making conversation with both of them on the bus. And I guess like a little, I don't know how long it was after that, a day or two or a week. I don't know what it was. But that kid, Frankie Smith's friend, came to school with a black eye. And it turns out, I guess, that he had supposedly been being abused at home. But he didn't want to, you know, stir the pot with his parents so he felt like he had to give them a name, them being the principal or the teachers, whoever he talked to. So simply because he had remembered me because I had talked to him recently, even though I was trying to be very nice, you know, I was making conversation with him and Frankie Smith on the bus. He kind of picked my name out of a hat and told the principal or the, or the gym teachers that I'm the one who gave him the black eye, which I had not, obviously. So here I am, this, you know, asthmatic daydreamer. <laughs> and uh, and um, the gym teachers thought that I was trying to be a tough guy and they were going to teach me a lesson. So their way of teaching me a lesson was to make me wrestle a kid who was clearly uh, uh, out of my weight class. You know, um, so pretty shitty when you think about it. And I remember on multiple occasions, they tried to give me an out out of gym class, not the gym teachers, but the administrators or whatever. People who had physical ailments or disabilities or whatnot could go to like, you know, this padded room where you climbed big, you know, vinyl cushions or something. I don't know. You know what I mean? Um, the, the place where you think of like the special needs kids is going. And I'm like, no, no way. I I'll just, you know, I'll just endure the horrors of gym class. <laughs> the last thing I needed was to, you know, then I really would have felt kind of ostracized or different. So I didn't take that easy out. And so all through, you know, middle and high school, uh, I opted to stay in gym class, even though I didn't have to, uh, just because I didn't want to be viewed as being any more different than I already, already was. Almost got voted uh, most individualistic one year, too, but missed out. I think I might have lost to all my friends. Don't know why the hell. Yeah, I do know why I went into that story, because of the wake up thing, but I don't apologize for saying that the Quran is a man-made holy book. Um, I don't believe it was divinely inspired. I don't believe Muhammad ascended into the night sky on a flying horse or anything else. And that I'm turned off by the violence in the Quran and, uh, 
not to sound like a Steve Shives, the misogyny. There's obviously stuff in the Quran about um, the ugly ways in which uh, female slaves, etc., could be used. Those who your right hand possesses. I don't apologize for any of that. I just apologize for what I thought was a kind of uncharacteristically glib response. All right. Speaking of Islam, I was listening to Sam Harris's Waking Up podcast. I've been putting it on the back burner, but I was actually going to do a kind of top 10 list of things I actually like that are either, you know, religious in nature or associated with religion. And one of them was going to be the poetry of Jaladin Rumi. And a lot of you out there probably already know who Rumi is. He's a Sufi Muslim poet from the Middle Ages, known for the really kind of beautiful and ecstatic and mystical nature of his poetry. And Sam Harris is a fan, too. And um, it was just kind of an interesting change to hear. uh, Sam Harris was actually talking about stuff he likes about Islam, uh, the call to prayer, uh, the poetry of Rumi, stuff like that. So I think I'll play that clip for you now. And Sam's guest, by the way, is Eric Weinstein. And just a heads up, this clip is about eight or nine minutes long, another long clip, similar to last week's with uh, John Hodgman and Pete Holmes. Uh, But in fairness, the original is over two hours. uh, And you can find the original, of course, by going uh, to iTunes or anywhere else where Sam Harris's podcast, Waking Up, is available. So, for instance, your, your jihadi sandbox, I, I also have that jihadi sandbox, and I have a, a blog post that I've referenced a few times on the podcast entitled Islam and the Misuses of Ecstasy, where I, I try, try to describe in a series of, of embedded videos just how deep my sympathy with the surface features of, of Muslim religion and, and spirituality runs. And, you know, I think the call to prayer is one of the most beautiful things ever to appear on earth. I, I, I love the sound of it. I love the sound of it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a great one that I linked to in that blog post. And I love Kowali music, Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan, the, the Pakistani Song singer. in Boston. Yeah. What, what a show. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's unfortunately, I never got a chance to do that. And I love the poetry of Rumi, and I and I and I even get what the have attra- you talked about this on any of your shows. Not not at length, but I've I've so uh, this, I wanted to come yeah. down here and talk to you about this in particular because sure. I think one of the things that's going on is that you do not spend enough time talking about all of the fantastic contributions of this culture, and um, you point in one case at the really appalling lack of scientific achievements mm. of Muslims, let's say since the Nobel Prize um, has been given out. I think there have been three in the sciences and one of them was uh, to the great Ahmadi Muslim uh, who contributed to the standard model of physics. Mm. Um, so he would be considered uh, not a Muslim in Pakistan. Right. Um, but I think one of the problems is you're not advertising the emotional valence that I've secretly suspected you must have. Mm. So, you know, when I, when I, when I struggle with this, I have a, a friend group that is disproportionately Islamic and, um, it's been one of the great experiences of my life since I was 16. My, my, my closest friend, um, you know, welcomed me into his family, his culture, Mm. uh, completely opening experience. 
And this is a, a friend from high school or friend from college. Mm. And, um, he, uh, you know, his family engaged in traditional practices with the hand kissing and, and f touching feet and all sorts of, um, or I guess the feet touching was a different kind of field of uh, respect, but the family was so courageous. I mean, his sister was brutally gang raped in India and the, uh, the father supported his daughter, um, mm. talking about it openly when you would imagine that there were the feelings of shame and the issues of honor would have been dominant. Mm. And so in my life, um, I have traveled, uh, always openly as a Jew in the Islamic world, and I've been treated incredibly well. I believe that if the Nazis were ever to recur, uh, the floorboards under which I would be hidden would likely be Muslim floorboards. Hmm. Um, so it's very painful uh, to not have this long, short language where in general, um, I've been in, you know, in a, in a largely Islamic social context since I, since I was 16, people don't ever address you as, oh, crusader. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. that, that kind of speech that you get used to watching ISIS videos, which most people don't watch, but I've, I've watched a great deal of them just because I, I need to know about this. Uh, you're talking about two completely different worlds that are connected. And I think it's really important to advertise more, more heart, more empathy, more emotion, mm. because otherwise the very dry analytic way in which you go about thinking about this, I think it's, gets too much play in a certain sense. It's, you're so logical that the fact that the texts say these very clear things or that there's ambiguity, but there's a hierarchy for resolving the ambiguities. It, this appeals to your analytic mind. And I think both you and I have an analytic bent and we would be much more tempted were we highly religious to go down these sort of, well, you know, it says here in the text that this is true. And if I really believe this is the infallible word of the creator and that uh, I'm going against God not to follow directions, we would be tempted by that interpretation. And mm. so I think in part, it's a little bit um, perverse that you almost have more sympathies with the literal versions uh, of, of the religion than you do with what you call, and I think it's somewhat disparaging, nominal members of, the, of these religions. Um, this lines up with what Majid Nawaz talks about, about multiple interpretations are the beginning of de-radicalization. And I think what you struggle with a lot is that you're very sympathetic to the literal and you're much less sympathetic to the uh, doped with nonsense or, you know, clearly our Judaism in the modern era is doped with Christianity, which I think is a pretty good thing. Mm. Um, if, if it goes too far, I get very alienated. But I, I think it's important to realize that the nominal versions of these religions um, are in some sense the true versions of these religions within the civilized modern era and the literal attempts to go back to... Sixth century or some thousands yeah. of years before Christ are uh, this is nonsense. So to to rewind all the way to the point of my not expressing my sympathy with the liturgy and iconography and spirituality and and food architecture it, music yeah, yeah of of these cultures enough I guess the the way I have decided to go long short there is not so much focusing on those features, although I have a little bit, 
but more to point out that my my real sympathy and solidarity is with the people who are suffering most under theocracy, and th- those are, in this case, actual other Muslims who are not disposed to live under a theocracy. So it's liberal Muslims, it's Muslim women, it's apostates, it's free thinkers, and you know, I try to come around, if I don't do it in every paragraph, I try without letting too many minutes elapse on the clock to come around to the point, just the, the stark acknowledgement that obviously no one suffers the consequences of global jihadism and Islamist theocracy more than Muslims do. And, and, and it's the Muslims I hear from, you know, the ex-Muslims and the, and the liberal Muslims, who I am always thinking about in addition to worrying about the civilizational consequences of, of jihadism. And, I, and I'm also aware that my sympathy with spiritual aspiration and spiritual experience, you know, my, my, like, my finding something intelligible in, in the poetry of Rumi doesn't survive collision with the doubts in the brains of many of much of my audience. I, mean, the, you know, I, I, I speak to atheists and secularists who, who have no idea what I'm talking about when I talk about meditation, and they certainly have no idea what Rumi's talking about, and many of them don't want to know. And so there's, there's you know, it's not, I don't really, I'm not censoring myself on the basis of that, but it's just Rumi's not so interesting to, to much of my audience, or at least hasn't been thus far. The other reason why I focus on literalism is because I think there there is an a there's an asymmetry here and a real advantage to the literalists, and I don't know how we ever get out from under this thing because the issue for me is that there there is a more and less plausible reading of any scripture, right. and this is what I ran into with with Majid in our conversation together. So so the so the implausible readings don't survive very well because they are in fact implausible it is it is impl- you can't really read any of these traditions to speak of the abrahamic ones judaism christianity and islam you can't read any of their scripture and get as a plausible reading the value that homosexuality is just as good ethically speaking as heterosexuality or that women are and and must be the political equals and the moral equals to men, right? So it's what you have to do is you have to bring those modern values to the text and cherry pick and leverage in ways that is a bit of a, a pantomime of scholarship. It's not really, I mean, you, you, you know what you want the answer to be in advance, right? right. It's, it's, not like, it's not like you're discovering those values in the text because actually the antithesis is in the text. I mean, where, wherever those topics are touched, for the most part, it's certainly clearest on on the case of of homosexuality. It's just it's anathema, right? So it's you know it's, it's anathema in the Hebrew Bible. It's anathema in Saint Paul. It's certainly the anathema in in the Quran and the Hadith. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And one of the things that first really drew me to Sam Harris was the fact that, like myself, he is an atheist who has quote-unquote spiritual interests, meditation, sacred music, uh, Eastern philosophy, uh, stuff like that. And yet, because uh, he has such a stoic, sometimes almost, you know, so analytical, he almost comes off as robotic kind of demeanor. I think some people aren't aware of that uh, side of him. And I guess since I promised at the top of the show, I'll do at least one news story And I think this is kind of a controversial or divisive one, 
It'll be interesting to see what people have to say about it and even what I'm going to say about it because this episode has been unscripted and I'm looking forward to my own reaction. So it's from the Huff Post and it looks like it's by someone named Carol Curavilla or Via. And it's entitled California Just Took a Bold Stand Against Islamophobia. Some good news in an election year for a community under siege. And this is dated to uh, the 4th of August, so not long ago at all, just a couple of days. California's state assembly has taken a strong stand against the rising climate of Islamophobia in America. On Monday, the assembly passed a resolution that declared August 2016 as Muslim Appreciation and Awareness Month as part of an effort to acknowledge the, and here it is in quotes, myriad and valuable contributions of Muslim Americans in California and across the country. The resolution, H.R. 59, was introduced by Assemblymember Bill Quirk and passed with bipartisan support, according to NBC. The writers of the resolution pointed out that California is home to over 240 mosques, more than any other state in the country. The resolution also decried the discrimination that Muslim Americans have had to endure in the years following the September 11th attacks. And here's a quote, Muslim Americans have made contributions to education, science, entertainment, and medicine, both nationally and globally. Quirk, whatever the heck Quirk is, Quirk told NBC News, unfortunately, the Muslim community has been and continues to be the target of harassment, discrimination, and assaults. Then it continues, the Huffington Post Islamophobia Project, which has been tracking anti-Muslim incidents in the United States, has recorded 233 Islamophobic incidents in 2016 alone. Three of these took place in California this past July, including one instance where a mom wearing a hijab was reportedly attacked and egged while walking out of a Walmart in San Leandro. And uh, here's another quote. During these difficult times of increased anti-Muslim rhetoric and hate incidents, Assembly Member, oh, Quirk is the Assembly Member. Assembly Member Quirk's resolution in recognition of Muslim Americans is uplifting for our community and immensely appreciated. Said Basim Al-Kara, Sacramento Valley Executive Director of the Advocacy Organization Council on American Islamic Relations. That would be uh, CARE. And to be honest, I don't know a heck of a lot uh, about CARE. I think I have heard some disturbing accusations about ties they might have, uh, but I don't have any evidence in front of me, and I don't want to wrongly smear anyone. If any of my listeners know more about CARE, whether they're, uh, to put it simply, quote-unquote, good, whether they're, quote-unquote, bad, um, Okay, now take it with a gram of salt. This is Wikipedia, which I haven't said this in a while. I generally find rather reliable, but I know it doesn't uh, enjoy the same positive reputation as, say, like um, a vetted scholarly journal or, or something like that. But there's a section that says allegations of ties to Hamas. Critics of CARE have accused it of having ties to Hamas. Federal Judge Jorge A. Salas, is it, said that there was evidence to show that CARE has an association with the Holy Land Foundation, Islamic Association for Palestine, and Hamas. However, Judge Solis acknowledged that this evidence predates the official designation of these groups as terrorist organizations. Okay, now back to the HuffPost article. 
Oh, yeah, and it just, <laughs> there was one sentence left, and, and this is quoting that representative from uh, CARE. It is truly a historic moment for all Californians. And so I know some people who are rabidly anti-Muslim will probably be like, Muslim Appreciation Month, are you kidding? You know what I mean? Um, me personally, I think as long as we're doing our best to make sure that political correctness isn't interfering with our attempts to keep America safe from impending terror attacks or that we're doing a good job of vetting uh, immigrants you know, and not getting lax in the name of political correctness. I really don't care how many appreciation days or months we have for different groups. I know a lot of people get upset when they hear stuff like uh, people wanting to change Columbus Day to, what is it, uh, Indigenous People's Day or whatever. Uh, something like that. That's no skin off my back, even though I'm an Italian-American. I'm also uh, a big fan, if that's the right word to use, of Native American culture and history, um, their story. I don't know if it's insulting to call their religious stories myths. Uh, usually we think of myths as being um, the stories of dead religions when there's still people practicing different uh, Native American uh, religious beliefs. But I, I would have absolutely no problem with Indigenous Peoples Day. I don't care if you want to have a Poison Arrow Frog Day or Tuna Casserole Month or, you know, whatever it is. Um, there are so many different cultures and traditions out there. And I think it's actually kind of fun to have these different um, little kind of mini holidays or, or whatever where uh, we're reminded to ponder or pay respects to different cultures. So even someone like me, who's really critical of literal belief in the Quran, and um, as I just did in this show, decries the violence and all that archaic barbaric stuff that's in the Quran, and even though I'm someone who thinks we should do everything we can to prevent terrorism, and we shouldn't just fling open our gates uh, to let in refugees or immigrants en masse, you know, more than we could absorb or assimilate in the name of political correctness. You know, I think we have to be smart about this stuff, but we also have to, you know, temper our judgment with, with a healthy dose of humanity. Um, so like I said, as long as we're not letting down our guard in the name of political correctness, I don't care how many appreciation days or months we have for different groups. But that thing about immigration and tempering our actions with humanity reminds me of, uh, I had another video up. It actually got pulled, to be honest. I have a habit of uploading little Bill Maher clips. I don't try to monetize them unless, you know, I've transformed them and made them a part of the show. But if I just put up a clip of real time with Bill Maher, I don't try to monetize it. And even then, I know it's kind of risky. You shouldn't do it. But if I find a conversation he has on his show or a segment really poignant, I might put up a clip that's in between, you know, two to nine minutes long or something like that, just because I want other people to see it. Uh, but finally, uh, first time since uh, I've been on YouTube, I've been on YouTube a few years, I actually got a copyright strike, which means that, I mean, you can get like a warning where if you use a bit of someone else's song or a, a clip from a show or something like that, 
you might get a friendly message that says you're not in trouble, your account's still in good standing, we're just letting you know there's a, a content match and you won't be able to monetize this content. But if the other party decides to take action, you know, then you can get a copyright strike. And if you get three strikes, you can lose your account. So they took down this video I had put up of Bill Maher interviewing a general and or a former general about uh, radical Islam and immigration. And by the way, I don't hold anything against YouTube for taking that video down. It obviously wasn't my content. I'm not the copyright holder. And even though I didn't try to monetize and I put no copyright claim in the description, it's still, you know, HBO or whoever it is, it's their property. They can do what they want with it. So, and, and I, in the back of my head, I knew that was going to happen someday. But anyway, uh, Silor the Blade, before it was taken down, had commented on that too. And I forget exactly what he said, but he was making a point about our attitudes towards immigration or whatever. And I was basically saying that it's a very difficult issue to wrestle with both ethically and logistically. Um, and I said, it, it, I kind of, I was kind of proud of myself. <laughs> I don't toot my own horn very often or do I, maybe I do. Um, but I was, I was kind of proud of myself because to my own surprise, I kind of distilled it down to this one little thought that it basically comes down to a choice between erring on the side of security or erring on the side of our better angels or wasn't that a uh, Lincoln quote the better angels of our being or nature or something like that you know basically meaning to appeal to our our humanity and so I think that really is it I don't know what the answer is but that's really what boils down to do we want to err on the side of security or err on the side of our better angels is there a sliding scale you know like the more uh, the more you slide the lever, kind of like one of those old cable boxes, probably before your time for a lot of you out there, as you slide that lever or arrow-shaped dial, the more immigrants or refugees that are let in, simultaneously increasing the risk that you're also going to be let, letting in a certain percentage that means you harm, you know, doesn't wish you well, that might be radicalized or will become radicalized. And in fairness, I know, um, as I said last week, often these terror incidents are committed by second-gen immigrants, kind of, the, you know, the, the sons of Muslim immigrants who fail to assimilate and maybe have some chip on their shoulder against society. And I think religion acts as the kind of accelerant or, you know, it gives them the excuse they need or the sense of purpose. It gives them it gives them something so they can lash out at society in the name of something. I don't know the answer. I don't know how far, you know, forward or how far back we should adjust that slider, how few immigrants we should let in, how many we, or, or refugees we should let it, let in or how many. Um, but, yeah, I think it does boil down to the choice of either erring on the side of 
security or the side of our better angels. And it'll take better, you know, hearts or minds than mine to try to find out what the balance should be. So I want to end the show by trying something different that I've really been looking forward to. And uh, before I begin, I guess I'll pour myself. It's the weekend after all. I was going to say a Jack and Coke, but actually it's an Evan Williams and Pepsi. I was going to buy Jack, but it's like $25.99 or something, at least at uh, my packy. So, ooh, that's a lot of bourbon. Now, some of you might know, if you've been listening for a while, that one of my favorite TV shows, if not my favorite TV show ever, is Northern Exposure. Yeah, I know, it's old. (laughs) And... uh, you know, even though I'm an atheist, uh, I guess if you had to ask me what I like about it, it's quirky, it's spiritual. Uh, I like all the literary references, and there's just a there was a certain kind of spirit of humanity about the show that I really liked. And one of my favorite characters on the show was Chris Stevens, who was played by John Corbett, who you might remember as. Uh, the male lead, I think, in my big fat Greek wedding, which I actually never saw. But John Corbett as Chris Stevens, I think, was one of the best characters on TV ever. And Chris Stevens was this kind of charming young ex-con who somewhere along the way discovered his kind of intellectual side and took an interest in art and philosophy and things like that. And he hosted a show called Chris in the Morning, uh, at the local radio station in Sicily, Alaska. I think uh, I think K-Bear was the name of the station. And he would go off on these little kind of quirky yet philosophical tangents that always kind of left you thinking or gave you a good feeling. And I bought a book called Chris in the Morning, Love Life and the Whole Karmic Enchilada. And yeah, that's a cheesy title, but it's basically an anthology of all those little philosophical tangents from the show. And so here and there, I wanted to start reading them at at the end of uh, some of the episodes of the podcast. And so this tangent takes place when I think the town of Sicily, Alaska, is experiencing the effects of a full moon or something like that. But I'll read it. Whenever there's a new moon looming on the horizon, someone will inevitably call to ask, Hey, Chris, what about that sucker? And I'll usually say something cordial like, oh yeah, it's a marvelous night for a moon dance, or I wonder what old Sun Young Moon's doing tonight. But knowing how we've all been tossing and turning these past few nights for fear of where our dreams are taking us, I'm not going to pretend that the man in that moon has our best interest at heart. He's too much of a kidder. In the meanwhile, until that big fella packs his bags and hits the road, Put away your sharp utensils and stay close to your loved ones, if you're lucky enough to have any. See you in the morning, folks, or in the moonlight, whichever comes first. Dreams are postcards from our subconscious, inner self to outer self. Right brain trying to cross that moat to the left. Too often they come back unread. Return to sender, address unknown. And that's a shame because it's a whole other world out there, or in here depending on your point of view. Indeed, for all we know, this very moment could be nothing more than vapors of our own imaginations. As Bertrand Russell mused, I do not believe that I am now dreaming, but I cannot prove that I am not. Point being, there could be more to our nocturnal journeys than commonly accepted or considered. 
This is Chris in the morning coming to you on K-Bear from Sicily, Alaska, in the heart of the borough of Arrowhead. I had a really weird dream last night, and I want to tell you about it. But first, the weather and local news. So I guess I'll leave it there. Uh, man, I loved Chris in the morning. But I hope you guys dug that. If you want to hear more of it, just let me know. And you guys know the drill. You can like the show on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter. Uh, check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. You can subscribe to the show or leave a review via iTunes. If you want to support the show monetarily, you can do so by using the PayPal widget at the bottom of the Podbean page. There's all that famous alliteration. Or you can go to Patreon slash The Week in Doubt and uh, sponsor the show for as little as 99 cents a month. All right. Stay weird.